Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of My First Season. I first heard of my guests today during my first season in the summer of 1994 in Turks and Caicos. I only actually met him 28 years later in the summer of 2022 in Montreal at Red's birthday party. And for the last two years, his name has come up quite a lot on this podcast. So you could understand my excitement when I actually met him that summer. He, however, did not understand my excitement in meeting him, but he was kind enough to let me explain why I was so ecstatic to finally meet him. His first season was in 1983 in Eleuthera as a sailing geo. He worked for Club Med from 1983 to 2020 and held positions such as sailing and windsurfing, public relations, chief of sports, chief of village, to director of training and corporate HR in Miami and director of UDT. Still don't know who I'm talking about? You have either all worked with him or you know his name as it is synonymous with Club Med. Of course, I can only be talking about the one and only, the legendary Howard McCarley. Howard, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great, Greg. Thank you for inviting me. I'm flattered. Uh, took a year, but we finally got you. Okay. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. But you're turning it, you're more of a legend to me than me now. You're, oh, no. uh, <laughs> my first season podcast has become oh, uh, no. big time. Oh no, you were like, when I, do you recall what, when I came, when I approached you, like we were talking at Red's uh, birthday party, I still didn't know who you were. And I said, I asked you your name, Howard. And I was like, Howard, what? <laughs> Hoping you were going to say McCarley. <laughs> so I couldn't <laughs> believe my, my, my luck. <laughs> yeah, it was fun that our path, our path crossed there. It was also, it was what a great moment to be able to uh, connect, to be there for Red and to connect with that entire generation of uh, geos, no? Yeah. Oh, it was awesome. People flew in, you know, like yourselves and then from California, Vancouver. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Absolutely. All right, Howard, are you sitting yeah. comfortably? Are you ready to begin? Sure. So I think we'll take it back to where I guess what you were what you were doing. Where were you living? And then uh, how did you first find out about Club Med? Well, I finished, uh, I finished university and didn't really know what to do with myself. And I was uh, working some odd jobs in Los Angeles that summer, right after university and teaching, including teaching windsurfing. And I was teaching windsurf classes and on the weekends, and I had this uh, great, really cool couple came in and I said, but they already knew how to windsurf. I didn't really understand why they're wanting to take a lesson is go, Oh no, we always do this. We want to do a, a, a brush up. We want to do a, we want to get, you know, kind of like a little practice in before we go to club med. And I went, well, club med, what's that? And uh, they think, Oh my God, you get, uh, this is, you know, they started, I had GM selling me, giving me a pitch on Club Med, essentially. And it all wrapped up by the end of the class. They're going, and you should really look into this. This You'd be great for that. And they like, they you can travel around the world. I mean, it was like they were giving me the whole, the whole recruitment sales pitch. And uh, so I did a little research and I uh, found out that Club Med did, in, in fact, hire people. And that lo and behold, who knew? My university diploma didn't matter much, but my windsurfing instructor skill set did. So I applied and uh, was almost immediately invited for a, a fantastic interview. I had to drive out to the Scotts, the old Scottsdale office and got interviewed by uh, by uh, one of the great all-time chief of villages, Silvio Di Bortoli. He was on a recruitment tour, getting his team prepared for his next season. So, and he told me the story. He ended up telling me the whole thing too. Uh, it was, anyway, 
GM, I got recruited by GMs is really the short version. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Just a quick side question. Since you've been windsurfing since the early eighties, you, you've definitely seen the, uh, the advances in technology and windsurfing then, because I've seen photos of that gear from, from, from the early eighties and uh, compared to what we have now, it's pretty incredible, right? Oh yeah. These were the old big boards that weighed about 50 pounds, uh, 50 and uh, made out of styrene plastic and uh, really heavy duty roto molded with those big wooden booms, teak booms, yes, yes. Fat, big fat sails. And they were pretty navigate. You could navigate them pretty well. And, uh, moderate conditions but as soon as the wind started really picking up they were a handful and the, yes, wow right. <laughs> it really changed and you'll know, forget doing trying to forget trying to do a water start or anything like that with those old that old equipment but yeah it changed so much uh it was sort of fun being in the club med being in club med through so much of that evolution and you go back out there now greg the windsurfing has kind of become a niche sport uh, it was, you know, it was like the hot, hot thing, the hot flavor uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And now it's, uh, you know, you go out there, you, you just see a couple people out there on boards. It's like sailing has come back and uh, retaken the position that windsurfing had back a couple of, you know, a while back. Yes. And I assume that since you knew how to windsurf, you knew how to sail because that's in fact what you did in Eleuthera your first season, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Well, windsur- um, Eleuthera didn't have windsurfing. Uh, the okay. old, Eleuthera, I don't know if you remember where the Eleuthera that it had. We had a, it was an amazing village. We had the marina on one side of the island and the village, the arena, the marina, and the, we had water ski and sailing and scuba. And then on the other side of the island, we had the village with the beautiful sand beach and uh, the pink sand and all. And you took a little 10 minute shuttle bus back and forth between the two sides. So it was, but no, it was deep water, no soft entry, no beaches on the on the marina side. So you couldn't really fit a windsurf program in there well. So and- I was happy in my second season out when they when they asked me to do windsurfing. I was all excited. Uh, do you remember? Yeah. Do you remember anything about arriving like your first week in Eleuthera? Oh, like, oh you know? my God. I remember so well. I arrived, I arrived at towards the end of the season. I arrived around the 1st of April. And uh, of course my first didn't know anything really about Club Med. And I came in there big, so exciting coming on top of that California kid, you know, you don't get to the Bahamas very much from California. So it was uh white sand and turquoise water. It was everything I expected it to be. And uh, everyone, they, I was really, you know, they were, they were all telling me, oh, it's the end of the season. So watch out. People aren't, you know, going to ignore you and you're not going to really feel like you're part of the team, but it wasn't my experience at all. So I loved it. And I was loving doing the sailing and loving, uh, living the, living the good life for a month. But what I remember most, Greg, was that this was back in the days that you did six months and then you had uh, everyone rotated and no one explained that to me when I was recruited. So I arrived, I, I guess I was taking over the contract of someone who was who had left early. And, but I didn't really put that through. I just assumed that I now had a job. And I, you know, I'd given up, I broke up with my girlfriend. I sold my car, got out of my apartment lease and quit my job and got on a plane. And a month later, the chief of village came to me and said, oh, Howard, we really had liked having you, but you know, now it's the end of the season. So, you'll be leaving next week. I'm like, what? <laughs> after, after you did all the- I just got the- here. I just got did- here. Oh, no, no, that- but you're a, win- you're a winter geo and uh, you know the, 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 there's going to be a summer team arriving. It's like, 
but no, no, but I, I just want to stay. I like it here. And I don't have anything to go home for. So I had to, they put, but no, no, hard rotation, hard and fast rule. Every, we all, this will, the way it works. You go home and they'll tell, you know, the, uh, the HR, HR group will call you and tell you where you're going next. So, I, so it's a matter of trust, but I couldn't believe, you know, so different today, I'm sure. A geo that wants to only wants to stay and renew his contract. The only <laughs> clubmen would fall all over themselves to make that happen. That's Instead, right. they're kicking me out the door because no, no, that's not the way we work. And you so did I had the whole and wait by the phone because this is pre-internet, right? Wait by the phone and hope that clubmen was going to call me, and they did. About two days after I, I got home, this this leap of faith paid off, and they uh, told me I was going to Ixtapa. So I was all so relieved. <laughs> well, yeah, because you, you had you very rarely does the geo do the quadruple, break up with the girlfriend, sell the car, sell the you know you did all four of those things, and then they said your chief of village says, "Well, hey, uh, thank you for a great season." <laughs> great season, <laughs> which, was, which was about four weeks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> four or five weeks. Oh my god. So, and on top of that, you imagine the shame, you know, I, I, I'm all excited. My parents are all happy to get me out of the house because here's the college kid who's, uh, doesn't really have a steady career yet. And I'm, uh, they get me out of the house, they get me off into a job and a month later, I'm back home <laughs> like a boomer, like a boomerang. So I think my parents were secretly, they were patient and kind, but I think they were secretly relieved when it really did work out and club had called me and I got back on a plane. Like only I was less than a week, less than home, less than a week. And then you got to, and then you really got to teach windsurfing in Extapa, right? With your uh, chief of village, Mike Coltman, correct? Yeah, exactly. Mike was amazing. Mike was actually, Mike was the perfect, perfect guy for me. The, yeah, I really had a chief of village that I looked up to who really brought me in to his sort of uh, family. He had a real family approach to things. The So it was a great, great learning curve. And I really got the uh, vaccinated, if you will, or infected with the Club Med virus, the Club Med culture that year, uh, when I was, that time when I was in uh, Ixtapa. But it was a poison gift because I was so excited. I traveled. I I cleared out the garage of my parents and traveled with all my windsurf equipment. So, you know, like two boards and, th uh, and a mast and uh, several sails. You can imagine what that looked like, right? Well, wait, hold oh. on just one second. Uh, why why did why did you travel? Yeah, because there was plenty of uh, boards and sails at Club Ed. Why did you travel with your own? Oh, you trusted your equipment? I wanted, yeah, I wanted my own equipment. I wanted to go out and play. And uh, I was also looking forward to this. And I, so I, so, you know, you had the, you have the learner equipment, but you really, you know, like anyone else, you know, golf pro travel, golf instructor generally has his own clubs, even if they have clubs at the, you know, they, they have clubs at the clubhouse. Tennis players want to have their own rackets and equipment. And uh, that I was that way too. And I got there and I never, ever used my equipment for the entire six months. <laughs> oh man. Ixtapa has no wind. Ixtapa okay. is the one village where it, the windsurfing school was essentially organized drifting. You know, they just, uh, they just kind of float around out there and fall off their boards and we bring, you know, and eventually they never got very far. <laughs> we oh. helped them back in. It was, uh, I was so disappointed. I, my, my equipment sat there. I don't know what the, I don't know what the rest of the team thought when I was all with, 
excitement, like a kid at Christmas unpacking his equipment and lining it up there at the shack and just waiting for months for some wind. Never happened. I assume there was a lot of uh, head shaking when they were looking at you on the on the beach, right? <laughs> like, what what does he do? Anyone, <laughs> anyone who's listening to this has been to Gestapo understands that it, it's it's a fantastic experience. It's a great, great village, but you don't go for it's not like the villages on uh, you know on the Caribbean side. You don't go there for the for any kind of a breeze. It's hot and sunny all year, uh, hot, sunny, and tropical, even in the winter. But Mike. And the club med culture there was so intense and so great. It was just, uh, it was like a indoctrination in a, in, in all the good ways into a club med, practically like a cult. But it was, I don't know how many people have worked with Mike, but he was just exceptional at uh, bringing the, making the, the geos really live the club med experience and love the company as deeply as he did. Now, in these first two seasons in Bahamas and Mexico, did you have any kind of a culture shock or what I call club med culture shock? <laughs> Since you had never been, like, did you wonder why everyone was dancing like four times a day? Or well, My arrival in Eleuthera, in the yes. first night, I was in the fire show. Oh, because, oh really? Okay. Because the sail, you know, the fire show at the pool, you know, where you're leaping through hoops of fire and swimming with torches and uh, that kind of a thing. Something I'd never done before in my life. But why? Because... The guy I was replacing apparently had a role in the fire show. So I was just a plug and play. So my first night in the village, I'm going, oh, you, you guys are, you be crazy guys. Uh, I'm my first memory of being in club, club med. My strongest memory uh, from that moment was that first night lining up nervously in a speedo, which of course the California kid had never worn, but that's what you had to wear. They had speedos for us. So we all looked the same in the fire show and having to leap through a hoop of fire. And then swim across the pool and then push uh, a windsurf or a, I don't know what was a push some kind of a board with people uh, with, uh, you know, with people on it uh, in a formation. I was really, are you kidding me? And there was no rehearsal for this. You never, you just hit a truck leaping through a hoop of fire. They didn't practice this. Maybe they had once upon a time, but not me. I was just in line. You know, I'm not, I know. Okay, your turn. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And your, your first day, you have no idea what's, yeah, I had a similar experience. So you don't know what's going on. People are telling you to do stuff. You're like, here, grab this, pull this. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they had wow. me dressing. In, I was dressing in drag by the end of the week because that was <laughs> something else. One of those num, you know, one of those drag numbers that uh, I don't remember what it was. The Pointer Sisters or something like that. Where my my the guy that I was replacing apparently had to have that role, that beautiful role on the show. So I was in a in a red sequin, a red sequin tube dress and a uh, with a pair of balloons. <laughs> okay, so they they really put you through your paces your first season then. Okay, okay. Well, my first, yeah, my first week it was uh, <laughs> really. I'm going. This what a crazy, crazy place. But okay, you know, fine. It turned out that the best, the best training, the best, the part of my skill set and my experience that I had that I was able to draw from the most was being a being in a being in the Greek system, being in a you know, fraternity, a fraternity guy in in college. So the party zone, the drinking, the uh, the socializing, the kind of crazy hours, and the just kind of willingness to do anything uh, because you know that's what we do. 
that was more useful for me than my education or even honestly, my windsurfing skills. <laughs> it's true. It was kind of a, the fraternity was kind of preparing you for club med in a way. <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> I guess it paid off. My parents were happy that my, my, my fraternity days actually had a, had a positive outcome. They got me a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, I'll say, cause then after Ixtapa, you get sent to the beautiful village of Playa Blanca. Uh, this time you're back to sailing because, well, yeah, again, for windsurfing is not the greatest in Playa or whatever it was, right? Uh, yeah, windsurfing is just too crowded there. They don't, you could have had a windsurfing school, the but it was a little tiny, tight squeeze. We barely yeah. had a waterfront. And did you go to Playa? Yeah, yeah. Between the scuba where they were and depending on which way the wind was, you know, you would drift into the scuba, you know, over the divers. So, yeah, I could see that could be problematic for people uh, trying to learn to windsurf. <laughs> Yeah, but it was, I, Playa was amazing. What, my first French chief of village. And uh, so I got my first indoctrination into uh, the front, because, you know, Mike is British and uh, it's a really weird, you know, spin on Club Med, you know, the kind of Club Med uh, filtered through a sort of a Monty Python sensibility. So he, Mike was great, but I didn't know that that was atypical. And uh, so I came, so I came in. I got my first real exposure to the to uh, French culture of all places in Playa. So I had a French chief of village and a bunch of uh, almost the entire management team was French, including my uh, my immediate supervisor, the chief of sailing. Playa was my first adult village, and it was the first time that I really also got the hard dose of uh, you know of the sink of the party classic parties and picnic uh 1980s club med the one that everyone because Luther was family Ixtapa was family and very Mike Coltman is she and they got there to Playa and it was a it was a free-for-all it was a festival it was all day and all night and uh plus that village also had an incredible culture would develop each week because it was so isolated from everybody else so people weren't coming in and out you really only had arrivals uh, on the weekends, and then no, the GMs didn't have any contact with the outside world typically until they left. So they leaned in, you know, they really got in, went in hard. They came in to party, and they partied all the time, and then they, uh, and then they left exhausted. So Playa was Playa was a lot of fun, probably too much fun. <laughs> and because it was so uh, such a small village and centralized, you you literally got to know everyone that week, right? Yeah, it only I I think when we we're full, it was only about five hundred uh, GMs or so. Back then, they were all almost all double occupancy though, because you all, they all had roommates. So and we were it was it was winter season, you know. So uh, you get the charter coming in from New York and the charter from Los Angeles and uh, and uh, charter from Montreal. And uh, I think that was pretty much that was pretty much those were the three feeders there. They were uh, they were a lot of fun. They came in in big packs and uh, discovered what a real Olympic day feel looked like in the, the old old school Olympic days. The drinking games, the uh, the partying. It also was the first village that had a it didn't have a nude beach, but they had a nude amphitheater, kind of a sun deck yes. up above Cuba. So it was the first place also where you uh, got, and the first village where I really saw it, um, you know, the topless sunbathing and all that, which, you know, for American California kid was an eye opener to say the least. Yeah. Uh, 
yep. sangria <laughs> parties and I was an alt I was the alternate picnic geo. So oh boy. Oh boy. that was it. Yeah, exactly. Because, like because of my stupid rules, uh, Howard. Yeah, my stupid rules. I can't ask. You're not you going to get a picnic story uh, out of no, me. I, no, I know. I know. You're implying an 83. Is, yeah. So because of my stupid rules, I can't ask you about that. So did anything uh, else happen? Okay. <laughs> fun, interest, <laughs> fun, interesting, appropriate stories from that season? If not, oh my God. Uh, we yeah. can move on to Sonora. No problem. Okay. <laughs> One of the funnest events in that village, however, was we did a sangria party, um, sangria uh, regatta which was essentially in and out with the sailboats and uh, drinking sangria on the beach and running back and forth. That was a big event. Olympic day was a big event. And then uh, at least once a week, there will be a sunset horseback ride over to the hotel across the bay. And which was the main theme was consuming these pictures of Margarita when we got Margarita's when we got to the hotel and getting back more or less intact in time for dinner. Uh, It was, (laughs) It seemed like every every day had some major, major party drinking moment uh, in the daytime that just kind of got everybody set up for the evening. But it was it was a lot of fun. I, uh, it really was. I just and uh, again, learning, learning, beginning to pick up on the importance of French. That was kind of when I decided that this is I'm enjoying this. I think I want to do this for a couple of years. And I. I better learn some French if I'm going to uh, get past, you know, just being the American kid on the beach. How did you start learning French? Oh, uh, I was, I had no shame, no fear, no, um, no sense, no self, you know, self consciousness where I, uh, you know, so I just got leaned into it and made mistakes. I learned very quickly that people, didn't expect me to be fluent. Most of the French I was learning there, you had the French management team, but no French GMs. So it was mostly from the Canadian gang crowd. So they're already bilingual. So they would just uh, feed me. They'd love having their kind of, uh, you know, the American GO, like a puppy who would lap, you know, grab, happy to learn new tricks. So that I'd learn a word of the day or a little, a little expression and then test drive it, try it out uh, with others. And uh, it was... The other, oh, the other, uh, which is occasionally embarrassing, either because of my mispronunciation or because people were just fooling with me and giving me really horrible things to say instead of something uh, legitimate and clean. <laughs> and then spinning me off, setting me off to see how I do with it. <laughs> You're going to get slapped. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, or, or actually, I didn't get slapped. I just got oh, laughed okay. at. Because you know you're doing with the American accent, you got this big goofy American guy with uh, you know kind of surfer hairdo and uh, surfer haircut and all. They just they rolled with it and they understand that I'm getting uh, you know I'm just goofing. the The other thing I learned there, and this was the secret to learning French, was I discovered there the the old French chief of sailing. He installed the, the classic clubmen tradition of every time that somebody. That every sailing school and every cl- shack, every sailing shack had a bar. And he worked for the first month of the season and building a beautiful bar inside in the back of the shack. And then the GMs, the tradition was if you ever capsize, you pay a bottle to the uh to the sailing team. But at that point, for the rest of the week, you are also a part of the club. And you can at when we close the sailing, we can have the aperitif time. At five, you we open the bar, 
and everybody, you know, you can have a glass with the chief of, with the sailing team. I learned that I discovered the French drink of choice, which is the and the French drink the the drink of the choice for the sailing team was pastis or Ricard. And I discovered a taste for it with that licorice flavor. But I also discovered that uh, if I liked Ricard, I would immediately be able to connect with the uh, with French speakers because they liked it too, or they saw the American, it became a conversation moment, or you just find yourself, uh, no one else is drinking it except the French. So I was the American drinking the Ricard and I discovered a taste for it. And that helped me, the Ricard rendezvous, Ricard moments uh, for the rest of my career in, uh, you know, those rituals, drinking caf your espresso caf coffee at 12 or no, at 10 o'clock in the morning and right after lunch again, and your Ricard, at uh at the end of the day those rituals were really got me in to understanding not just the language but also the uh kind of in the rhythm of the french touch just one question howard did it occur to you that you could have got a a, a french a geo girlfriend and learned all that, oh, that uh i'm just kidding okay. now, i uh, yeah, i didn't know you're gonna I don't, go there i, I, I don't want to take uh, away I, from I, your yes. record time you're right that that is no, a help my, but... Okay. <laughs> along the way but because what am i doing i'm drinking ricard and then i'm sort of finding that as a way of shoehorning my in way into the into uh, french conversations at the bar or at the t or in the restaurant um i started socializing more and more and more and i uh, discovered that american charm works on french women and in some weird way and uh it really did begin in playa a long, long history of dating uh, francophone uh, girls. So, and that who would invariably be happy to teach the American, teach the American uh, a little bit of French along the way. Eventually, end up marrying a French wife. So, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> but that was so that came a lot later. But still, <laughs> it, yeah, French, uh, the French socializing in French was including dating in French was uh, great. Well, now you go to Sonora Bay from Playa and I was happy for you till because you went as windsurf, but then I saw you were there in summer, not winter. So I'm guessing there wasn't any wind in Sonora Bay in the summer, correct? Well, it was it, anything's better than Ixtapa. In Sonora, okay. yeah. Ixtapa, <laughs> you did have wind. It wasn't every day. You'd have, you have windy days and you'd have calm days, but it was the first time I got, I was no longer traveling my windsurf equipment. I just figured okay. Club Med find something for me and I, I, or I pick up something locally if I really, really wanted it. And I didn't trust the winds anymore at that point. <laughs> but Sonora was an opening. That was um, in 84. That was the, uh, oh, really? was the opening of Sonora. So it was my oh. first time doing the village opening. And it was really flattered to be a part of that. And the summer was blazing hot. You know, it's like Phoenix temperatures by the ocean. But it was... It was a lot. It was a lot of fun. It was a different experience. So you had, of course, you had a top-notch, you know, su superstar uh, geo team. So I you know, learned. I had. A, I got to hear and meet a lot of uh, people who had the long histories and had a real, you know, career. Got to see really top what big budgets could do for a show for the shows on stage. They brought in a lot of. You know, we had. You know, we had. I you know 25 trunks of uh, feathers and costumes and all that. The food was incredible because, you know, they had the best kitchen team possible. 
it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. Um, it had all the errors and dysfunctions of openings too. Of course, got to learn a little bit of a lot, you know, the roll of the punches kind of uh, attitude you need to to make it all to make it all work. But Sonora was beautiful. Loved it. I kind of I miss, uh, miss that place. But uh, I just remember though there was no shade at all, and the sun was so strong. We were just cooked, desiccated and and uh, barbecued, all of us who were trying to work on the beach. And the beach was a long ways away from the village center. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you had the, um, was the chief of village, Michel Proriol? Proriol, yeah, absolutely. He was a funny duck, but he uh, he had his own way of doing things. And he, but, uh, and kind of a standoffish sort of dry humor. But uh, it was a fun, it was, it, the, I remember, I remember more about the team and the people that, uh, the people we were surrounded with there and the general level of excellence where I really felt like, wow, I've got, I got to step it up. I got to step up my game if I'm going to be uh, worthy of being, being with, uh, you know, of this team. Well, then you find yourself with uh, another favorite of yours, Mike Coltman, right? You meet up with Mike Coltman again in Fort Royale, the winter of 84. Absolutely. Yeah. Mike. Mike never forgot me and uh, by, by any means. And he was recruiting a team for Fort Royale. At that point, of course, the California kid who had worked in Ixtapa and then Playa and then Sonora. You can see where I'm going with this. I'm uh, like, finally, you know, I'm going to be, I'm practically back home. <laughs> I'm working my yeah. way up the West Coast of Mexico. <laughs> and I had, you know, one of my, you know, one of my goal, personal goals had been to see the world, travel, see the world. That was the Club Med, you know, so those gms back in california had sold me on when they were telling me about how great it is to work for club med and here i am pretty much doing i've done a year and a half at that point on the west coast of mexico and a month in eleuthera so i was so excited when i'm, I'm going to a french territory in guadalupe i'm going to work with mike coltman again who had been far and above the uh the best chief of village i had worked with I'm going to reconnect with a bunch of people who had, because he keeps, he had his traveling troop. He had the same 20, you know, the core team of 20, 30 people he always worked with and flattered to be a part of that. And I got promoted. I got to, uh, you know, that was a big deal for young, young me with my little ego. I was, uh, oh boy, I'm going to be a chief, chief of sailing. <laughs> so I uh, went out to Fort Royale and uh, loved it. It was a really, really different experience family village but it's the oldest village in north america and it was really so close to the original concepts it was uh and the village had everything with only 300 gms can you imagine when we're full only a hundred like 150 rooms total in that place little pocket size village but it had every activity you can imagine scuba sailing circus mini club baby club water ski everything you could possibly think of and all there in this little pocket-sized village so uh get the everybody knew everybody it was very 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 friendly and there was a really great flow also between uh the the local community the local towns right around there little fishing villages on that side and that's the sleepy non-touristy side of the island and it was uh amazing it was a real cultural experience for me too and my first time to really be out there in the Caribbean. So it was, wow. And a French immersion. That was the first time I really got French, had French GMs. A British 
Anglophone kind of a team, you know, touch in the team. But it's the first time that we systematically had about a third or half of the population of the team would be French. Of the not the team, the um, the GMs would be French. So I got to practice my French a lot. I was in heaven in for in in Fort Royal. Got to have a little level of responsibility to take care of the team and then uh, a little budget to manage. And uh, the uh, the sailing itself was kind of a mess. The, the way big waves, you're cra- you're repairing boats all the time because they're getting pushing catamarans out through the surf and having them pushed back and broken and such. But it was a great, great moments. Well, I am curious how you got to your next village because they send you to Il Maurice in 1985 with Chief of Village Luke de Stillman. So did you request Il Maurice, La Pointe au Canon yet? Uh, or did they send you there? They sent me, I, I'm, you know, Mike had, a, Mike's hand, Mike had a hand in that. Mike takes care of his own. Mike Coltman always took care of his own people. And and it, it was kind of on my agenda. So I'd always dropping hints with HR that you know, I'd love to work overseas to get outside the uh, the American zone. And that, but it came off, it worked off there. So I got to fly. And that was the biggest trip in my entire life at that point. You know, so uh, by the, you flew. I, it was also the first time I had to go to Paris. I had to, so I flew from, Flew from Fort Royal, you know, back, back to back to Miami. Uh, back, back, sorry, my, I went through Miami and then off to uh, L.A. And then my trip over, you know, I had to fly all the way to Paris, which was already incredibly exciting, my first time in Europe. And then um, an overnight there, I got to actually go to the to the Paris office, which was a lot, you know, like walking into, you know, into. Uh, the you know going to the white house or something like that right you know it's the how it's the mothership of everybody right and you always heard about it but and then uh they put me on a charter the next day or uh down to mauritius you know so it was a took more than it took me like almost 48 hours to get from california to mauritius when i and mauritius on 12 hour time difference so that you know midnight is midnight in mauritius in in california was noon in mauritius so i arrived I arrived at something like uh, seven in the morning, seven at night when I finally got to the village and I meet and, you know, I had a bite to eat and I just crashed. I just, I had been running on fumes after 48 hours of travel and time lag and jet lag. I crashed, went, I went to bed. And it turned out that my boss, the chief of sports, missed my arrival, but was really upset that I wasn't around that evening, that I hadn't, that, you know, where is this guy? Where is this American? I don't understand what's going on. (laughs) And I'm just, (laughs) I'm unconscious. I mean, just dead to the world. I've never been so tired, physically exhausted in my life. You learn how to travel and you learn how to deal with jet lag, but that was my first deep dose of it. And I thought, you know, I thought, you know, West Coast, East Coast jet lag was a big deal. But no, a 12 hour jet lag is incredibly <laughs> yeah. just destabilizing. Takes almost two weeks to get rid of, uh, yeah. I recall. We, <laughs> he understood later. It was not a, he ended up being a, being a great support. But uh, it, I got off on the wrong foot because I didn't do the social routine. I didn't make a, an effort to show up and uh, socialize and kind of put my hours in. But I don't. They weren't really thinking about someone to travel from California. Yeah, they had, uh, but Mauritius was fun because it was uh, 
mean, what an exotic country, beautiful people, um, international clientele, a mix of South Africa, South African party, party, party people, uh, French club med aficionados, hardcore club medders coming from France. And then um, Japanese honeymooners. It was like a three, <laughs> a little schizophrenic when you think about it. The three three zones or three, uh, and they had to keep the the planning had to keep them all kind of separate because those two three populations did not mesh mesh well, interact well. <laughs> well, we know we know Il Maurice is a big big water ski village, but how was it for wind and windsurfing? Ah, I was. It's a good village. It's, uh, I mean, you have the, it's, um, you know, it's kind of like your typical turquoise or, uh, you know, kind of wind conditions in the winter. You got the kind of sort of steady, steady wind conditions because of the water, the wind, the only challenge there was the wind was an offshore wind because that's what made the water skiing possible. So the water ski stayed in close and windsurfing, you, you really needed to get out about uh, a couple hundred meters, you know, few hundred meters before you start really catching the wind so that was the the ugly part you really couldn't small you couldn't do small board windsurfing there you'd never get off the beach but once you get 100 100 200 yards out you start having some really nice conditions and you can zip back and forth and have fun <laughs> no but in mauritius I, I don't know if you um if you've been out there whatever but mauritius is infested with sea urchins oh really uh, so your biggest issue when you're windsurfing was, was that you're always, you know, the GMs were always stepping on the sea urchins. You really oh, want to wow. stay on your board or you, you, know, you need to wear shoes, you need to wear booties or something like that. So, every, you know, dealing with dealing with sea urchin uh, uh, spines in feet was kind of a con sort of a constant flow there. But there's a virtue, you know, there, there's a benefit in all of the uh, right. Every cloud is a silver lining. The sea urchins were delicious. Yes, I was just going to ask you that if you guys had the thing at the sailing where you cooked them or barbecued them. <laughs> yeah, what we had a we had the picnic boat, the snorkeling and picnic boat would a couple times a week. Remember these are the Jap remember the Japanese are a big part of that village too. They had we had all those Japanese honeymooners. We would go off and take we we take them with white the French and the Japanese, not the South Africans, but the French and Japanese would load on the boat there'd be about 45 people they'd sign up for it no cost and there'd be take white white wine you know coming from the restaurant and people would go over the edge as they go to a particularly infested part of the uh, reef people go off the boat and start filling up buckets with the urchins and they come back up and uh you'd have geos um serving wine and cracking open the urchins and, and people spooning them out it was uh it was great so we had an urchin party on the beach once a week, but several times we'd actually go out and do it on the boat. First time I ever ate fresh sea urchin. I don't know if it was uh, wise or not, but it was great. <laughs> yeah, they're delicious. <laughs> Funny texture, kind of like eating yeah. snot, you know, kind of snot, <laughs> not like texture, but the uh, taste is incredible. The intensity, the, uh, the, the Japanese around the urchins was incredible. They just lived for that that was like the peak moment of their vacation oh really oh, okay <laughs> luke is one of the funniest guys i've ever met a belgian chief of village so many of the classic club med sketches that most of them you wouldn't do today 
he yeah. invented, he created, and it, every show had at least one Luke DeStillman sketch in it. And it was must-see. Everyone, not just the jams, but every geo would make a point of being in the theater because it was never the same thing twice. And it was always just world-class uh, humor at, at the level. I mean, in terms of execution, in terms of just... <gasps> The, the deep, deep belly lap. I'd never seen anything like that where someone that talented is just working, right? You know, he's running a village, but he's uh, giving his heart and soul in the theater and genuinely funny. I met a lot of chief of villages who sing or they do, you know, they have their thing there, but Luke would hold everyone together just with his talent of making people laugh. He was a verbal comedian and a physical comedian, and the two of them were and 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 a creative genius too. Excellent. Now, now your next village I've worked at, and I was there in the winter, so I darn well know you had a great time windsurfing in the Bougainier, Martinique, eighty-five. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 You cannot complain in there, right? I mean, if anything, back well, when I was there, maybe I don't know that when you were there, was it really heavily trafficked by sailboats? Like you really had to watch where you're going, right? Was it like that? No, back then? Was it crowded? I know that. No, that hurricane harbor or whatever they call it, mm-hmm. that little yeah. that little pocket there. I, I it's I think it's developed a whole lot more since uh back when I was there back in okay. the eighties. Okay, so you could do it freely and not worry about slamming into another border or sailboat or catamaran. Uh, <laughs> okay. But you're right. It was what an ideal waterfront. Yeah. Where you had you had a nice quiet corner where people could practice be, be, do beginning windsurfing in the lee and the, you know, with the offshore wind and the shelter there in the shelter of right in front of the sailing shack, you had a water ski area that was, you know, we had good, great water ski conditions because they stayed close to shore. And then either further out or off the point, you'd have those incredible side shore windsurfing conditions. It was perfect. Plus the great windsurfing takeoff point was also the nude beach. So that was, you had an, (laughs) you had an added bonus there. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Take a little time on that water start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And p- big time picnicville. You know, this is, this is, Mar- this is uh, Martinique at its heyday. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Once again, I can't ask you about picnics. We're not going to talk about the picnics. Uh, what about, I, uh, I end up, I end up okay. being, I was recruited as the, uh, the standby, the reserve picnic geo because okay. they would run three or four picnics a week. And by the third or fourth one of the week, the picnic geo sometimes wouldn't be able wait, to. Wait a minute. Make. Hold up. There was three or four a week, three or four of these picnics a week, because it was Good they Lord. line up for the, the day of the signups, you know, like five o'clock in the afternoon, the day before, and people will be lining up at four to get a slot into the picnic. So they would run. If they filled up the picnic, which was always, they'd run a second one. If they filled that one up, they'd run a third one. And occasionally fourth one, but no human being can lead a Martinique picnic four times in the same week and and still, you know, without you know fit you know without having major physical issues. Uh, so we had we had the kind of injured res- you know we, you know you you have your picnic geo often in injured reserve. You get I get the knock in the morning, <laughs> or the or the night before maybe if I'm lucky. Okay, Howard, you're not doing windsurfing today. We need your help on the picnic because. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. John Broad or whatever can't can't perform. 
<laughs> well, it, well, yeah, excuse me, Howard. I, I've heard from geos from that era that GMs would get off the plane and see you in the airport and want to sign up for the picnic. They they didn't want to they didn't yes. want to know about the room or their bags or like where, where do I sign up for the picnic? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Absolutely. So, wow, three so, or four a week. I did not know that. I got really introduced to that the hardcore 1980s Club Med New York GM. You know who had uh, been hearing all you know coming down for the legendary Martinique picnic. Okay. Uh, and it was a weird mix because, you know, about half the, half the village would be uh, French GMs who want peace and quiet and to have a, a nice experience. And the other half were out of control partying New Yorkers. And uh, it it was something else. So uh, the picnics were a big deal, but the Olympic days were even bigger. And um, how did Abdel Zouari, the chief of village, handle all this craziness? <laughs> he understood it. He kind of let a portion of us take care of the Americans. And he, you know, he would kind of take a little bit more care of the Europeans and uh, kind of divide and conquer because the village really ran at two speeds. He was, uh, so he, and of all the chief villages I worked for, he was by far the best manager. He ran he really, really had an incredible a handle on everything. And he could do the public relations. He could do the front of the house. He could do all that. But he really ran the machine and had made sure everyone was doing their job and made sure that he delegated with ease and knew when he, and he also had the intelligence to when to step up and step in when they, when he was needed. But he didn't run it out of ego like a lot of all of us did. And I have to, I'm guilty as guilty as well when I, as an Earl, as a young chief of village, it was all about make, you know, having it all run well. And if he could be hands off and run it from behind the scenes, he was happy. If he needed to be up front, he was fine. It was just an incredible intelligence. And, uh, he, uh, and he gave, I don't know, I caught his eye somehow, but he gave me a lot of uh, his coaching and attention to, and maybe being Tunisian, he wasn't really too, you know, he had a, a bit of a distance from what, culturally, from what, both, from all of our clientele. But wow, I think of Mike, Mike Coltman infected me with the Club Med virus, like I said, you know, he, I, he gave me the heart and I, lo I love Club Med because of what I saw. I saw what seeing it through his eyes and seeing it through his way. But Abdel really taught me what a professional is. And uh, he also was probably the man who had the most had the most impact personally on my career because he also he did the true mentoring, which is, you know, the responsibility of a mentor steps up and uh, and Mark creates opportunity for the people he's mentoring, either by marketing you, by singing your praises by getting you onto the right lists and into the right moments, as well as by challenging you and forcing you to step up. And he was one of the, he's probably the first chief of village I met who also knew when I wasn't giving hundred percent, you know, though he was not, he knew he saw through the fake it till you make it uh, California persona. And uh, he knew when I was giving hundred percent and he knew when I was doing great, but he, but could be doing more or doing better. What a great, anyway, you can see uh, how much admiration I have for that man. Well, sure. And as a future chief of village yourself, you 
you had the uh, you're in a new, unique position to take what you liked from each chief that you worked for, correct? Um, absolutely. But I think uh, more than anything else, I modeled my my chief of villageness, <laughs> if that's a word, after uh, from what I learned from him. He uh, he really, really was the he was the complete package for my mind. For my mind, he didn't have Mike's brilliance and craziness and funny Monty Python esque approach to things. He didn't have Luke DeStillman's talent, but he managed to man it to keep a team together and to not make the chief of village job seem overwhelming. Uh, he wasn't, you know, he was able to kind of keep a distance from it and have extraordinary results because he got the best out of all of us. Now, you get sent to a village, which is a personal favorite of mine, and I know the windsurfing is great. You're windsurfing <laughs> on, on the Red Sea. Uh, you went to Eilat, summer of 86 with Miradu, I think was a very famous yeah. chief of village. Yeah, and I kept coming back to Eilat. I ended up doing a lot multiple times. I get, I kept wanting to work in Europe, and I never did. So I got, I mean, I technically... Europe, both Mauritius and a lot are uh, in Israel are in the European zone, yes. but they're not in Europe, either one of them. Uh, they may be managed uh, out of Paris or war at the time. So, yeah, I got to a lot, which my <laughs> surviving my summer in Sonora Bay was good practice for a lot because uh, it's pretty much summer in a lot was pretty much the same conditions. Those. Uh, oh, the sun. Oh, boy. 120 degrees plus days. Yes. Um, well, let me ask you a question. That was the only beach I went there after 10 years is the only beach I could not stand barefoot on even for uh, three seconds. It was that hot. So was it that was it that hot when you were there? Like, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And you slowly over the course of the season, though, you actually would be able to walk barefoot on the beach, which was, you know, I end up uh, probably burning out all the nerves in my feet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and let me yes, ask you. Like what, what, when, where you launched the you know, the windsurf boards from at, at the time, was there a protected area on your right for snorkelers marked off? Was that Absolutely. there? Absolutely. You have the National, okay. the National okay. Park. Okay. So oh, here, 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 yeah. here's the problem. The wind comes in. I'm going to call, I'm going to say from the left for our layman. So pushing all the beginners yeah. onto the protected area. And then meanwhile, the Israeli soldiers that are monitoring the, the, that area are screaming at you. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's not my fault. <laughs> Look where you put this thing. So did you have that issue when you were there? All, all the time. <laughs> okay. Getting people because as soon as you take off from the beach, the wind blew from the North. And immediately to the south, I mean, not 30 meters to the south. Yeah, the, yes. The restricted area begins. I thought it was and a joke. Constantly, <laughs> constantly dragging people up, 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 upwind. And immediately they're bound down in there, no matter what. Yeah. It, it was terrible. Oh, it was I, I, so much time trying to rescue people. And of course, you can't take your motorboat in there because it's yes. a national park. Yes. And so you're, you're swimming out to them, right? And then you're having to, they have swim back and you're having to, you know, swim uh -huh. the windsurf board outside the lines. Oh my God, I never worked so hard and in then, my life. <laughs> and then across the bay, you're on the Bay of Aqaba. So yes. the village is facing uh, due east mm -hmm. on a north-south beach. Yep. The wind coming from the wind and the Sinai Desert are to the north of you. That's, uh, and the uh, Sinai Desert. No, not the Sinai. Uh, the... Well, you got Jordan right in front of you. And then you have you Jordan the... right in front of you. Yeah. And then you've got this. And then you've got the only and the only thing that's separating from Egypt 
is this uh, snorkeling zone, the snorkeling uh, national park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, and you had patrol boats from Jordan and the Israeli Navy going back, patrolling back and forth on this imaginary yes. line. Yeah, in exactly. About, yes. <laughs> about a half a mile offshore, maybe a mile offshore in front of you. So if you can't, if you went, if you go out too far in your boat, you're going to get intercepted by one of the two navies. It was a very, in, very, very interesting to say the least. But it was the the wind was ex, was exceptional. Yes, I immediately bought a you know bought a used board locally and had my. It was finally a place where it was really worth having my own equipment because you could really leap off and you're in uh, world class wind conditions right off the beach. Funny crowd. Of course, you had the Israeli uh, GMs that came in for three, four days and wanted an intense clubmate experience. And uh, and then you have the uh, and then you had the French GMs who typically wanted a very, very, uh, you know, wanted a Holy Land experience, wanted to really do a deep dive into Jewish and Israeli culture. So you had this you know, war at the pool, you know, what are we going to, do we play Israeli folk music or do we play, <laughs> or do we play uh, you know, classic club med, uh, French, uh, you know, Euro, Euro pop music. Uh, and, and the neither, the two of them couldn't see eye to eye on that. The Israelis of course had disdain for our French GMs because uh, to tell them what to do, because they said, listen, if you're, you know, if you really, really want to tell us what to do, you can come here and live here. We live here. This is our country. Uh, you're just a visitor. And uh, the French GMs, of course, didn't appreciate that the Israeli GMs would kind of take a break from uh, their re regimented Jewish living and kind of, you know, there's a kind of unspoken rule in Israel that a lot is the Las Vegas of Israel. What happens in a lot stays in a lot. You can be you can unplug and you're on the other side of the country and you can you get a, a free pass to be like to to eat and drink and have to eat uh break kosher you know break kosher and such while you're in a lot and then you go back and you you know then you're part of Israeli society again after your two day uh your two day breather. So those two cult and the, the French were the opposite. They were coming in and wanting to like double down on their Jewish experience while they were there. So it was a really funky 50-50 mix of two again of two clientels that didn't mat that didn't mesh it and didn't really like each other very much <laughs> but uh, it was a lot of fun and i ended up being pretty good at that and i ended up being really good with the israeli clientele and that made a big difference where so i was constantly getting involved you know recruited to do pr and rub you know and uh shake hands and kind of keep the ambiance going because the a very, very, our very, very French chief of the village didn't really appreciate, and a lot of the management team didn't really appreciate the uh, Israeli clientele so much. So I got, uh, I got recruited a lot to do that. And they kind of like, the Israelis kind of liked having an American to complain to, or not even got to complain to, to talk to, to confide in. That was the, actually the really fun thing also was for me, because they didn't complain to us. The Israelis, even if their English was great, the day they wanted to complain about something, they wanted to do it in Hebrew. Yeah. So the poor whipping, uh, you know, the scapegoats of the village would be the poor Israeli geos, who all they would get would be they'd they'd be sought out whenever the 
the Israelis wanted to complain about something. They didn't want to talk to Frenchmen. They didn't want to talk to me. They wanted to, you know, complain and uh, gripe in uh, in in Hebrew in their country, which is of course normal. So we only got the best. I only got the high energy and the best positivity out of them. <laughs> I'll say <laughs> the sun was. Oh my God! It was just like Sonora. Intense, intense, intense heat and sun. You got uh, and lots and lots of rescues. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got a question. Since you were there in Israel in summer '86, I see you go to Luxor in Egypt, fall of '86. So, did you even go home during that time? No, that you... was like a that was like an interim. It was like you know, they, oh here, um, you know, if you don't want to go home, you know, would you could could we talk you into doing a, a short stint? uh in egypt and it was so close by and i'm saying i'm this part of the world and go yeah that of course that'd be great count me in what was Why that not? like um and i was just kind of jack of all trades you know, we didn't know luxor didn't have uh windsurfing or he didn't even have a sports to, a sports team it was an excursion village really people would come in they'd spend a night or two they immediately go off and either rent bicycles and go over or or take a tour into the Valley of the Kings and the Temple of Karnak and all of that. So I got to experience a lot of that and up close. And you have days in which you'd have maybe five GMs in the village. And then you'd have days in which it would be the village would be full because, you know, it would kind of come and go with the, uh, the, you know, the tour cycles. So you're right on the, you're right on the Nile. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Luke, so I don't know if I can tell the story or not. You can always you can always delete it, <laughs> oh, later, Greg, okay. if you need to. Well, uh, Luxor was the first village. One of my strongest memories of Luxor was it was a village where we had um, the air conditioning was terrible. The uh, and that was in the you can imagine in Egypt that was important. But we had one of these tour groups come in. And we had a GM who passed away quietly on a. After, right, you know, a couple hours after his bus arrived, on a, a lounge chair, on a, you know, on a lounge chair by the pool, it was a German tour group, and they had arrived, and a couple hours later, he was he passed away. Of course, he. These are the days in Club Med didn't have, we didn't have keys to the rooms. This is the old 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 school, right? So he had no identification on him. He didn't have a key, a room key. He didn't have any identity. He didn't wallet or anything on him. He just had a swimsuit, a t-shirt, and some flip-flops. And there he is on the pool deck, and nobody really noticed because he just—it was a very, pe very peaceful. He took a nap on the pool deck and never woke up. Okay. Uh, uh, died peacefully, right? I guess. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, exactly. But uh, very—you um, know, this is—you know—man in his—I don't know—in his forties or so. No particularly distinguishing characteristics an incredibly uh generic looking 40 year old he arrived in a in a tour group of germans who didn't really know each other and no one said anything we had no idea who this man was we had no identification and so it became a real murder mystery in the village of how who is this man and who do we contact? And uh, we were, um, so, and we had no, you know, so he was put in the chief of village's office, packed and packed in ice in a giant tub from the, from the food and beverage team. He was packed in ice 
And we waited for, you know, and people, everyone's strat, all the chief villagers stressing about how do we know, we don't know who this guy is. You know, so they called the leader of the group in that point him out you know, into the chief of village's office. And the leader said, I th- I'm not sure. You know, he didn't know he could he didn't recognize the man. He said, yeah, I think I probably part of our group, but I don't recognize the face. And it took 24 hours and 24 hours later, his roommate. You know, who didn't know it, they just randomly assigned roommates. His roommate came knocking on the door. Or, you know, came up to the reception and said, you know, this is really odd. You know, I arrived. There was a guy who checked in with me, but he hasn't ever been back to the room. Oh, <laughs> here, this is, come with us. <laughs> anyway, yes. okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Then everything was resolved. Then, of course, we knew exactly what room he was in. Because, you know, the, you know, we're thinking about, do we go door to door and ask if anyone's missing or whatever? So the chief of village opted to just quietly wait with the body packed on ice and... You know, a little less than a day, we found out finally who he was. But imagine in those days, with you are not carrying ID, you're not carrying, and you don't have your roommate doesn't know you. You don't have a room key. You know, it happens on the day of the arrival. What a weird, weird, uh, right situation to unlock. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. That was that happened in my uh, my first weeks there. My in a short it was a short stint in, in there, but it happened in my in my early uh, shortly after my arrival. Remember it amazingly. We just like oh my god, this is like something out of an Agatha Christie book or something. Okay, so Howard, I'm looking at the uh, village list that you sent me, and I'm I'm really darn curious because your whole time you've been on the sports team, and then and then for some reason in the sun on the beach, and then for some reason you go to Copper Mountain in, in the snow, uh, chief of village Bob Fagan. Yet your restaurant, uh, you have to tell me what what was the what was your thinking there? Well, I talked about you know I had this dream of working in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I, the other one I had was I really wanted to do a snow, a snow. I heard so much at this point about snow ski seasons. I was also kind of hoping, Greg, that I would get to a snow ski village in Europe, but no, didn't work out. But I, uh, and I was going, okay, but what do I do if I work, in, if I'm going to work in, um, in the snow? What do I do? And well, one, if you work in sailing and windsurfing, of course, you're pretty good at uh, doing repairs. And uh, you're good with tools and you're able to fix things. You know, that's kind of part of the gig when you're always repairing boats and repairing equipment. So I had a, I uh, asked if I could do what they call ski man to work in the ski shop in a mountain village. And uh, they had a training program for it. You have a week or so, a week or two of training on how to tune skis and fix binding, you know, set up by, you know, fit people into skis and bindings and adjust do adjustments for people all of that kind of work people people told me it was a great job because you work your butt off on the weekends when people are arriving and then drop and picking up their equipment and all that and then the rest of the week you have big slot big chunks of free time and you could ski a lot and really get the winter experience so I I asked for that, and uh, the uh, New York HR, it was still New York HR back in those days, not Miami. They uh, they said, "Great, we have an opening for a ski man in Copper Mountain," and this is wonderful. So I off I off I went to the winter in Copper Mountain, 
It lasted about four days and about four days in, the chief of village welcomed me and all that, about four days in, he came to me and he said, listen, I have someone else I really want. I have a musician I want to fit into the ski team so I can have a music, music on stage. And I also just lost the rest of the, the restaurant manager. So. <laughs> okay. So my career, my ski man career never really got off the ground. I barely was help, barely there. And I was immediately shoved into, uh, well, you seem like you can manage a team and you seem like uh, you're willing to, to work hard and, uh, if you want to, the only way I can keep you here is if you're going to take, you're, you're going to take the restaurant for me and don't worry. It's an easy job. You, you know, it, it runs, it practically runs itself. Well, that was not quite true, but I ended up uh, being drafted into, uh, I wanted to stay there and also can't, I'm unable to turn down a challenge. So I uh, ended up accepting the restaurant, uh, the restaurant job. And I ended up working a whole winter uh up there i survived the whole winter i guess it's, that's my mo my what i'm proudest of was i survived the winter at, uh up there running a restaurant with absolutely zero food and beverage experience beyond having observed a few restaurants in my day it was copper was restaurant in copper you do you remember that i i've never been but i've, I've had a, had a lot of geos uh, from copper explain oh, okay. uh, their restaurant in copper at you open the restaurant, breakfast opens at seven in the morning, coffee goes out at six. At six, there's already at least 40 people waiting for coffee in the lobby. And at seven, you've got at least 200 people lined up waiting for breakfast. It's like a tidal wave, a tsunami just hits you. So you'd wake up, you come down to the restaurant about 5.30, get the coffee out. And your big, your first thing as restaurant manager there was to see if you're going to have GEs that day, if the if the local personnel was going to show up or not because of the weather, if the weather was too nice, they'd all be off skiing. They'd all call in sick. If the weather was and you know good snow and good sun, if the weather was terrible, it's because the roads would be closed and they couldn't get to work. And so you'd have to worry about that and you'd be stressing. So you'd arrive, you'd always wake up early, get down there and you'd first thing to do is do a head count and see what, if you're going to survive the knowing that you've got hundreds of GMs waiting for breakfast and no one is more hungry than they are, you know, at seven in the morning in the mountains after have skiing hard and uh, living in altitude. There's, they don't get a good night's sleep. They wake up cranky and hungry and they want to get out on the slopes. So they're ravenous. They're all there. It's not a slow start. And you had to worry about your staffing every morning. And sometimes you just run the restaurant with only three people and, and just hope that HR was going to help you out and get some people there late, you know, by nine or something like that to at least do clear and set up lunch. But it was a steep, rough learning curve. And uh, it was, I was really, it was a thrown, throw, thrown to the wolves. And like I say, my badge of honor for that season was that I survived. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the chef cuisine or the, or the food and beverage manager was going to, was going to at some point would finally come in and kill me because I made mistakes because it wasn't a smooth operation because, you know, we'd have staffing problems. It was rough, 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 rough. But I also probably got over a hundred days of skiing in that year. So uh, afternoons uh, get, you know, be able to run out and 
get do a quick two hour two hours on the slopes and come back in and feel alive again so it it wasn't all bad you got to ski your butt off that's good <laughs> exactly and i really learned how to ski that year in a ways that you know i never had before just from taking little ski vacations in my childhood you know get it you get 100 plus days in it uh in a year you know so 200 300 hours of skiing in in a year in a, in a winter you'll uh you're going to develop you develop uh, some skills especially when you have access to great instruction all the time yes um one more question for you howard because uh, hopefully yeah. you, will, you will agree to come back and and finish your story but i'm curious since you were in copper and the next season chief of sports what i don't want to get too much into but um how did you find out about a stage or was there a stage for chief of sport like how did you um what happened there at the end of copper and before punta cana like uh, word come around was, uh yeah the stage was funny i when i had i went the stage was in france which was kind of cool so i got a good good reason to go there i honestly did i learn anything about being chief of sports no well, how did you get on it? Is what I'm, I'm curious how you got on it. Where, but I, was, but, I uh, but the stage moment was a moment of uh, you know a, a rite of passage in those days. The chief of sports stage was a big deal. Almost all the chief of villages in those days had been chief of sports, and they uh, yes. So they take some real hard ass fitness freak chief of village, and he'd be tagged to run the chief of sports stage. And he you know he have twenty the you know the the new promo chief of sports of that year would be all all there, and we'd all be at his mercy for uh you know for five days a lot of fun super physical but it was like he would just go in there you know like you know is the mate is the most important quality of a chief of sports that you can you know that you're the best athlete on the sports team no not at all if they he didn't teach us a bit about managing a sports team or meeting expectations of clients or anything like or doing inventories or managing a budget no 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 he pretty much just got us up at the crack of dawn and had us run five kilometers and then immediately go in and hit the weight room and then go and, uh, you know, then do a, a little bit of classroom stuff. And then we're back out there organizing games and running tournaments uh, and such. It was uh, it was kind of like sport, you know, chief of sports boot camp. <laughs> and a lot of it was about the, you know, this this chief of village kind of reliving his glory days and it kind of showing, trying to show up and kind of demonstrate that he could out macho the rest of us who are, you know, we're 20 years younger than him, but uh, he's the, he's the pro. And on top of that, I was the sailing guy, you know, sailing windsurf guy. So running five kilometers uh, wasn't my, wasn't really my forte anyway. And we didn't, we were in, I don't remember, God, where were we? We were in the, where were we? We in Vitel or something like that. We were in some landlike village where they didn't even they didn't even talk about water sports during the entire week. It was just this guy reliving his land sports glory days. But it was a lot of fun, and it was a good immersion in my French in my French you know a good milestone in my French learning career in my French language career. But it was it was an honor to be there, get tapped for that, and that it was a lot of fun. But I really learned being chief of sports on the job. Uh, those. That was interesting. <laughs> kind of had to figure it out along the way. But uh, Howard, excuse me one sec. How, but how did you get, like, what was the process for getting on the chief of sports stage? Were, were, was someone from HR going around to no all the villages? Idea. Like, do you have someone who's interested? I, or? It was not, in those days, it wasn't organized. We didn't have some kind of a KGO program. There was no, okay. 
it was really word of mouth and being sponsored. You'd have some chief of village. And I had, uh, you know, I had people, I had Bob and Mike and Abdel, three chief villages who all had real reputations. And then I had, you know, proven something to them that all were kind of sponsoring me and, uh, you know, putting the calls into HR to, you know, they, they got to watch, you know, this guy's he's up and coming. This one's a great, and you know, no, 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 I, I, I vouch for him. It was really like being tapped into a secret society. You had no, uh, you didn't know this was coming. You, you know what you want, you know, you wanted to be there. You knew you want, you'd asked for it maybe, but no, it was uh, kind of, you know, being, <laughs> you know, midnight get tapped on the shoulder and say, Hey, I just got a, I just got a, a message from, from Paris that you're in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, is there a secret handshake too? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's end this here because I so much want you to come back and uh, finish your story. You know, because you went from endless stories. Sorry about sport, that. Chief of yeah. No, no, no problem. If you're, uh, if this goes well, uh, you by all means, please come back and and, and finish it. But uh, I want to thank you. Right, we'll I do want to thank you right now for for sharing this first part of your story with us. It's been very kind of you. Oh, to it's do that. fun. I'm enjoying. Uh, you're you're triggering some memories that I hadn't really visited for a long, long time. But uh, what what a positive and joyous career I had. You know how lucky I was to be able to have these experiences and uh, see so many, you know, so much of the world and learn so much about people along the way. It was, it was great, Greg. Well, thank you. Well, no, I'm glad I finally got to meet the man, the myth, the legend after 28 years. It only took 28 years to meet you, but I'm glad I, I'm glad I did. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Uh, lived up to the hype. <laughs> so you got it. Again, well, thank uh, you, sir. Everyone, that was the one and only legendary Howard McCarley for you. And cross your fingers, he will be back at a later date to finish the second part of his story for us. And uh, we will see you all next week with another new episode of My First Season. Here's where we say our goodbyes, Howard, to everyone. Thanks for listening. Everyone. All right. Well, goodbye, y'all. Thank you. And thank you for uh, for listening, if you, had, if you, if you did. <laughs>